welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. This episode is the first of a three-part series, which has been produced in partnership with the Museum and Art Gallery of Northern Territory in recognition of the annual National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards. In this podcast, I speak with Glenn Isiga-Pilkington, a Yamaji Noongar man from Western Australia who has Dutch and Scottish migrant history. Over the last 15 years, Glenn has had a varied career as an artist, writer and curator and has held curatorial roles at the South Australian Museum, Western Australian Museum and the Art Gallery of Western Australia. Most recently, he's become the lead consultant at G Consultancy, where he works with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and arts workers. Glenn and I talk about his curatorial and consultancy roles, as well as discussing his work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, collections and objects, touching upon the larger changes that he's seen in the arts during his career. You've had a really interesting and varied career in the arts, and I'd like to talk through that, but I was hoping you could first talk about how you became interested in art. For me, my interests were kind of predominantly around where I grew up, and also my um, grandfather was an artist um, living in Kununurra. So I've just always been surrounded by kind of Aboriginal art particularly, and my um, my grandfather was an incredible painter and and also just a tinkerer. He would fix things and he was just always doing stuff with his hands and making stuff. So I think that's probably the initial kind of inspiration for kind of getting involved with art. And then just through kind of schooling, it was always what I gravitated towards as well. So I think, you know, it wasn't really a choice. It was just more... I was naturally inclined towards the arts. So you studied art and later moved into curating and now you're an arts consultant and working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and arts workers. What do you do in that role and what does it look like at a day-to-day level? Late last year I finished my kind of uh, institutional life as a a curator. I did a a wonderful exhibition um, at the South Australian Museum called Water, Home in the Manadara Lands and it was probably um, the most challenging but most rewarding exhibition I've, I've ever worked on. But towards the end of that time, I'd, I'd really had a, had a good think about my capacity outside of those institutional spaces and, and made that big decision to launch out into consultancy work. And for the first year, I, I really wanted to try a bit of everything, you know, not really be very specific around what work I would take on and what work I wouldn't take on. But it's been a great year for working working out what it is that I want to to kind of really focus on through this role as a, an arts consultant, which is a very vague term as well, you know. Like, I guess some people call themselves independent curators, other people call themselves art facilitators, and I think on my next business card I'll probably just write uh, arts handyman <laughs> because, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a job that requires you to be incredibly flexible and to, to kind of stretch yourself or challenge yourself as to what your abilities are. Uh, but day to day, it's a difficult thing to explain. So obviously, there's a lot of project work that I do. So uh, work where we work with an art centre or, or a number of art centres and and predefine a sort of strategic a, a initiative or objective that we feel addresses a need in the sector. So one of one of the I guess the best examples of of that work is an initiative that a partnership I'm working on with the Perth Centre for Photography. Um, and that's called Exposure New Voices in Western Australian Photography. So that initiative is essentially looking at providing much-needed skills and training, both 
conceptually and creatively from a, a visual arts point of view, but also in technicalities of working with cameras and equipment to remote-based uh, Aboriginal photographers here in Western Australia. And and for me, that really was born out of the idea that, you know, often we go into these photographic exhibitions and there's a lot of people in, in those shows who are kind of repeat presenters. You know, you see... Uh, a very limited number of photographers around Australia in major exhibitions, photo media exhibitions. So we thought we'd get together and, and try and create an initiative which helped to see a lot of these remote-based photographers, arts workers and artists have a greater visibility within the kind of public face of Indigenous photo media here in Australia. So, I mean, that's one of the projects I'm working on. But for me, the, the greatest thing in the last year of sort of working across all of these art centres, particularly in Western Australia, has been working with young people and mentoring them and helping them find more confidence in their roles and greater sense of value and importance on their roles within the sector and the art centres because often they're not the elders who are who are the knowledge holders, you know, the people that are always consulted and always seen publicly. So that's been a really great part of this year is really mentoring and providing these young people with new opportunities. So in terms of curating, you've held curatorial roles at the South Australian Museum, Western Australian Museum and the Art Gallery of Western Australia. And I'm curious as to how you first found working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and collections and objects, but then also working within an institutional context at the same time. Yeah, well, I guess for me, you know, working with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people was just an extension of, of my life experience. You know, I grew up in um, in the Kimberley mostly, so in Derby and Kununurra, and that's where most of my Aboriginal family were residing at the time. And working with Aboriginal people is just like being at home, you know, it's the most familiar space for me. But then the challenge of being the middleman between Aboriginal communities and artists and individuals and a museum brings a whole set of complexities which were uh, challenging, often quite rewarding, often very difficult um, and hard to to kind of reconcile as an Aboriginal person. But I mean, I, I wouldn't take back any of the experiences that I've had over the last sort of 15 years. They've all taught me, me something. I've had great opportunities to kind of develop my own knowledge base around contemporary international and Australian art, as well as to research and learn more about Aboriginal Australian art. I think there's a sense that, and a kind of a myth that Aboriginal curators have all the knowledge about everyone around the country. And in fact, we, we need to do as much research as everyone else to make sure that we're sharing stories in the most culturally appropriate way and that we're giving them the stories that we share within these spaces, the amount of rigour uh, that they need to, to kind of ensure audiences understand the sophisticated cultures that this work comes from. I mean, in terms of working in institutions, they are notoriously tough spaces. They are predominantly non-Indigenous staff and very rare to find um, Indigenous or Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people working at executive level or even on the boards of many of these places. So fighting the good fight and trying to ensure that what happens in these spaces is fair and um, and that there's an equality and, and, and a respect for Aboriginal art and culture um, is always a huge challenge, particularly if you're one of <laughs> a very small team of Aboriginal people or the only Aboriginal person working in that organisation. So you're working within these institutions and also, like you're saying, working within a larger contemporary art context. 
And that's a context which is loaded with a colonial and, and Western history. And it does show how galleries and museums, which are supposedly neutral spaces, have been and still can be are just expressions of white culture. How do you navigate the politics of that art context? Look, you know, I think the notion of the museum is an interesting one. You know, it's a place to to care for objects, to present objects, to share stories. But the colonial history of collecting artefacts and cultural material from across Aboriginal Australia and the Torres Strait Islands was premised on a much different set of values. It was very much about gathering these kind of collections of objects for a culture that was seen to be dying out. And, you know, there was active campaigns to try and make it die out through the last couple of hundred years. So I think that museums are a kind of, you know, they're tormented with their own histories, but a lot of them are doing great work to rewrite the role of what their museums and galleries can do. I think the the honest truth of it all for me is that these spaces will, or as much as people are doing great work, they will never be the spaces for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They will always work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think there are some great museums and some great people in museums who are trying to sort of turn that on its head. But I guess, you know, having sort of mentors and people who I've looked up to, like Hedy Perkins and Brenda Croft and Francesca Cabillo, who have talked about a, a national centre or a number of national centres that are run by Aboriginal Australian and Torres Strait Islander people, which are about the presentation of their own material um, and done in ways that reflect Aboriginal ways of being and knowing and pedagogy. You know, for me in the last few years, I've started to really understand the significance of that beyond the surface level of we need our own museum, but more to do with the, the kind of constructs of power that could be turned on their heads if if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were given that remit of presenting and caring for their own cultural material. In the past, you've said that part of your curatorial role was about being the person who, at this stage, does bridge the divide between anthropological archives and art and finding new ways of connecting Indigenous communities with their cultural materials. And so in light of what you just said, I'm wondering how you now see or understand bridging that divide between archives and Indigenous communities. Well, I guess, you know, I mean, those comments from my mouth were made when I was embedded um, with, within an organisation and probably, you know, I sort of was championing that cause when I started at the South Australian Museum. And I think there's still some great people at the South Australian Museum and other museums who are doing their best to connect these fields of Aboriginal culture which have this artificial divide or artificial separation. It's nothing new that, that I'll say, but Aboriginal art and culture are not separate, you know. Artifact making, the creation of tools and weapons, stone tools, ceremony, song, all of these different aspects are a part of the one culture. And I, and I guess that, that there is a point of difference when it comes to political work, which interrogates power structures and, and our society um, in the here and now, and, and perhaps doesn't come from that kind of custodial inheritance of culture but still speaks to the, the kind of complexities of Indigenous life. I guess that, that bridge, you know, there's a lot of 
people, a lot of Indigenous people in, in these spaces who are those bridges, who are, are there to facilitate access to collections for community. I think in terms of trying to reconnect these cultural materials, artworks, recordings, archives, and trying to reconnect them all together, there has to be a kind of commitment both uh, yeah, well, I guess from an institutional level, to work together to reunite some of those disparate elements that have been fractured through collecting practices and through the kind of uh, corporate histories of, of museums. So, you know, for example, the Art Gallery of Western Australia and the WA Museum used to be housed in one building and at one point the collections were separated and, you know, up until recently people have been finding things which kind of should be in the museum or should be in the gallery. And, that, and that's talking about physical separation, but for me, I guess the more interesting part of that is, you know, reuniting these objects with each other and letting them sit culturally in the right way that they should. So everything from storage through to interpretation, through to exhibition, publication, all of those things can contribute to telling a, a, a full and cohesive story around our cultures and our histories. So that idea of being a curatorial bridging device, it's not quite the ideal for you? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, it's, you know, what our museums and galleries, I think, are doing but need to be perhaps pushing a little further and and, uh, is that everyone needs to be a bridge and everyone needs to have, whether it doesn't matter your, your cultural heritage or everyone within these museums needs to be given the tools and the understanding and awareness of how to be a bridge and how to how to work with Indigenous people without the constant reliance on going to one expert in the museum. And those changes take time. They're all about building people's confidence, building people's capacity, having open discussions about race and culture, which give everyone a little bit of agency to share their story. And that's how uh, I guess I see the museums of the future in Australia needing to work. You gave a great interview a couple of years ago for Unmagazine where you talked about curating material objects in particular and you said at one point, for me, the focus has become much more about being a conduit than being a cultural practitioner. And I thought that was just a really nice and interesting way of seeing what you do. And I was wondering if you could talk about that idea of being a conduit. Yeah, I guess like people have often talked to me and asked me questions about my curatorial practice. And, and, and look, I, I give a great lot of respect to curatorial practitioners who, you know, invest their whole lives in refining that craft. But I think as an Aboriginal person who has had the role of curator of Indigenous art or, you know, curator of material culture and, and Aboriginal art, all of these kind of these words which define who I am with these, within these institutions, they've never really sat particularly well with me and I've always really felt more that my role is not to be some voice of authority and to, you know, to offer the interpretation around an exhibition and to get up and talk publicly about a community that perhaps I have no cultural affiliation with but there's, a, there's an exhibition being presented in an organisation that I work for. So I've always felt that not only that conduit role doesn't just need to be between community and the museum, but it's also between the community and artists and makers and the public. And it's also between objects within collections and the museum and objects within collections and uh, the public. So that, so that role of being 
really the tunnel that things pass through. And in that is a kind of relinquishing of any sense of ego that comes with the title of being a curator. One of my biggest struggles was the glorification of the individual in curatorial roles in, in these big museums and galleries because as a conduit, yes, you, you might write something lovely about a, a work and you might get up and give a great talk about an artist or a community, but at the end of the day, without the community, without the art, without the object, without the opportunity to visit communities, there's nothing nothing of me in there. So, So I've always kind of thought of myself as having to refine my skills and to become more talented um, at what I do to be a greater conduit. You wrote once in ArtLink about how Indigenous art doesn't fit into simplified narratives and you wrote, its purpose for some is expression, for others it is documentation or radical thought, for others it is a crucial tool used to represent personal cultural identity and a sense of self. And so I'm wondering if you've seen part of your your role as this kind of conduit as to consider how Aboriginal artists can redefine the ways in which their work is viewed and understood and critiqued. Yeah, it's interesting. That article um, is probably one of the most read things I've ever written and has been published uh, online in a magazine and then went to a book. And then after that, it was like, okay, the journey of that article is done. I guess at that time, you know, I mean, we all grow and change and, and my politics at that time were about the invisibility of a lot of Indigenous people working in cities or or what have you, or people working in maybe bigger towns and, and what have you. And, and, and I guess I was acquiring a lot of work for, for the State Art Collection at the Art Gallery of WA, which was about ensuring that the, the many voices of Indigenous practitioners around Australia were being collected and being exhibited and being seen. And I guess 10 years later or so, I'm now working with remote-based artists who are wanting to work in ways that aren't expected of them. So, for example, I've done a fair bit of work with a Nyanadara photographer, Christabel Porter, an amazing, talented artist who, you know, comes from a a place in the world where people either weave and make jumpy, they carve and do punu, um, or they paint, or there's a bit of sculpture work that happens out there. But, you know, the camera has often been used for a different purpose in the desert, to document, to photograph people and places and and to share stories, you know, in more of a photo documentary kind of way. But her big dream was to be a photographer. And and so in the same way that when I was at the Art Gallery of Western Australia, I was making sure city voices and, and people working in ways that aren't coming straight out of traditional cultures had a visibility. I'm now sort of working in another way to help people who come from those places where there's such a strong tradition of painting country and doing so in a way that um, people would, would use the term traditional work, which is highly contentious. But I'm now helping these other guys and girls and ladies and men to kind of, you know, work in new ways that don't happen in their own communities. So I guess the journey's still there and I'm still focusing on visibility and, and making sure that the diversity of practice is seen. I'm just doing it from a different set of politics these days. Most recently, you've been a judge of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Art Awards. And I have a twofold question about that. What's that experience like for you? And how do you conceive of the role of awards like these? Obviously, I've judged a fair number of awards in my kind of 
time working in this sector. So, you know, it's not like a science prize or a maths prize. There's no definitive answers through that process. I always find the, the process to be really great fun and really interesting. Of course, it depends on, on who your sort of co-judges are in those spaces. And last time from memory with Telstra, I, I was judging with Bindi Cole and Roger Benjamin. So that was a really different kind of experience to this year where I was judging with uh, Kelly Galatley and Judith Inkamala. I mean, the process itself is always a tricky one. And, and the thing is with me, and, and I'll be really honest with it, obviously I'm working very closely with a lot of art centres. So I know a lot of these artists very well. I see a lot of their work as it's being made in art centres. And so I naturally gravitate to people in those spaces who I've got a great rapport with. And, and it really very much is about locking all that away in a cupboard. It's about looking at the work. And so having Kelly Galatley and Judith Inkamala there to challenge me and say, yeah, but, you know, is this the best one? Is this, is this the greatest thing in the room? You know, do you keep coming back to this? Is, is this holding your attention? You know, all of those questions that come up through the process uh, that challenge you and your alignments and your preferences to come back to the work itself are really important. You know, Judith Inkamala brought a really kind of interesting desert understanding or a desert perspective of the work and equally was very attracted to work from the rest of the country. And, you know, we've all got our preferences and what we like. And Kelly's sort of just a great mind for looking at paintings and thinking about the stories they share. So I think together we were three parts of a good cake, you know. That's a lovely metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Three layers of an amazing sponge. Yeah, so the process is always hard. Um, obviously, for me, I've been involved in another panel where um, Gwenby Gunnambar took out the, the major prize. So there was always that kind of querying as well and sort of sitting back a little bit and, and seeing how other people were responding to that work. You've got to be careful about your influence in those spaces and making sure that everyone comes to a, a kind of group consensus. I have one final big picture question. You've been working in an artistic and curatorial capacity for over 15 years now, and I wonder from your perspective as an Aboriginal curator, artist and writer, what do you think has changed in the arts in Australia during this time, whether for better or for worse? Well, I mean, one of the things I've noticed lately is that a lot of galleries and museums are really committing to self-generated content. So, so when I was, you know, a baby curator at Agua, the big touring show and the buy-in shows that would travel around the country were a really popular thing and, and, and it was great because you got to being exposed to the scholarship and research and curatorial sensibility of curators from around the country and, and now it feels as if, you know, and I think a lot of this is driven through financial um, sort of limitations too, but, but self-generated content seems to be appearing a lot more often in museums and galleries. That's one of my observations. So it can be tricky for um, some projects to find good venues if they come from outside of, of that organisation. I think more broadly that there's a, a kind of increasing kind of uh, visibility of Indigenous Australian artists collaborating with teams of people to kind of help their visions manifest into the world. So if you think of the likes of, you know, other artists who work in similar ways where they, have, where they work with a, a, like a studio artist who works with many people to produce work, perhaps like Patricia Piccinini or, or people like that, I think you're seeing that happening with Aboriginal Australian artists too, which is really exciting because what it says is 
we have vision. We have these amazing visions and we want them to be big and bold and we want them to include technology and to be cutting edge. So there's this real interesting kind of moment now where people are working with creative teams and employing other people to help manifest this work, which I think is really great because it, it positions Indigenous uh, Australian art, you know, alongside contemporary Australian and international art. Um, and I think that it's often been quarantined off as being something other than um, the practices of Western artists or non-Aboriginal artists. So, so that's an exciting thing. In talking about that idea of visibility, the work of Indigenous artists, people of colour, female and gender non-conforming artists and works that fall under the banner of outsider art, these works are becoming more visible. But do you ever feel there's a swing between being invisible but then alternatively being hyper-visible? During my sort of curatorial career, I, I did get a little bit cynical around you know, the popularism of Aboriginal art in terms of, oh, you see one organisation do a, a Jungle show and then the next one would do one and the next one would do one and then someone would do a Tiwi show and then someone else would do a Tiwi show. And, and, and so, so it felt like um, very much a lead and follow kind, kind of model. And often, you know, you would see that there would be large Indigenous shows around Australia, um, you know, and then a couple of organisations would do that and then there'd be a nothing for ages, then you'd see this huge focus on European Impressionism or, you know, or kind of the emergence of modernism in America and Europe and, you know, you'd see these other shows. And so, you know, and I worked on one of those shows in the Van Gogh, and Beyond show, um, which was part of the MoMA partnership at Agua. So, so you know, I was um, even involved in, in some of that. So, so I became a bit cynical and just kind of thought, well, you know, it's cyclical and in three or four years then, you know, maybe black will be fashionable again. And there does seem to be, I guess, at the moment, quite a, a large investment from organisations in the presentation of not just Aboriginal Australian, but, you know, people of colour um, in their exhibition programs. But So that's exciting. I just hope that it continues and, and that that commitment to equality and representation within visual arts and, and creative practice in large organisations is a cultural change and not a fashionable you know, moment in our in our history, because I think there's so much around the world happening, looking at race, gender, sexuality, the colonial adventure, which, if we, if it's seen in Australia, can add such greater rigor to the conversations around those very same things happening here. And that was Glenn Isiga Pilkington discussing his curatorial and arts consultancy work. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and remember you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes as well as check in with Art Guide online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from around Australia.